3: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine the latest. Today, key updates from across Ukraine, reaction in Westminster and beyond, and we ask the question Did Vladimir Putin underestimate Vladimir Zelensky?
4: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in
3: fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday I'll be bringing you the news of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, from the Telegraph's newsroom in London and from our journalists reporting from around the region. It's day seven of the war. Boris Johnson says the vice is tightening around Putin's regime. But on the front lines, it's difficult to get a clear picture of the situation. So, to dissect it all, I sat down with Dom Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Mutaz Ahmed, Olivia Utley and Francis Dernley from our comment team, and Tony Diver, our political correspondent. Amid conflicting reports from the front, I started by asking Don Nichols whether there's anything we can really know for certain about the state of play in Ukraine.
0: Hi, David. Um, very short answer, very simple answer is no, there's nothing we can know for certain. Uh, war is always a very confusing Activity. They, people talk about the fog of war. General Wavell, a, a figure in uh, British military history, said that 60% of reports you get are either wrong, outdated, or misleading. So no, there's nothing we can know for certain. Uh, we have a number of people on the ground in in Ukraine, but they are uh, a small in number, and it's a very large area. So what they're able to confirm is is. Uh, is very little but we know that there's been shelling overnight again in in Kiev and uh, and Kharkiv to the east there've been reports as you say contested about the gains uh, possible gains from Russian forces in the south but it looks as if the uh, that supposed land corridor that we know uh, Russia is very uh, is very keen as one of their objectives that land corridor from from Russia through the contested areas of the Donbass through to Crimea that looks like it is it is firming up. So Mariupol is in the middle of that. Um is slightly to the west, but it looks as if that area, which has over the, the week of this campaign, as it's, this latest phase in the campaign, obviously Russia invaded in 2014. We shouldn't forget that. But uh, the week of this latest phase, the the push in the south seems to be the area where Russia has had the most success. Elsewhere, there's still this uh, column stretching to the to the north of Kiev. Uh, this uh, supposed 40-kilometre column, that doesn't seem to have moved, um, wh- and it also doesn't seem to have been interdicted. So that says a lot about the, the well, it says something about the Russians, that either they're having an operational pause to uh, uh, reconstitute themselves, refuel the tanks, re- refill the, the soldiers, or... Um, but it also says a lot about the Ukrainian Air Force and their inability to to interdict those vehicles because I mean there are there are I'm sure British and American um, a10 and apache pilots uh, and a lot of other pilots from across NATO just looking looking at that column and thinking that's exactly what these aircraft were designed for um, and they would have loved to have had a go at that so so a lot of confusion as to what is happening and why but it seems as if Not not an awful lot has changed around the capital city. Kharkiv has come under uh, much more intense aerial bombardment last night with civilian casualties reported by Ukrainian authorities. And in the south, it looks like Russia is having some limited tactical success. Can we focus on Kharkiv uh, just for a, just for a minute? You, you've
3: written about it today. Um, what's happened there in the last twenty four hours? There are reports of of shelling and,
0: and also um, and also airborne forces. What, what's happening in the eastern city? So shelling, yes, we can confirm that. There were reports of airborne forces as well. Uh, where and and how many is uh, disputed, but a bit like the the effort of Russian airborne forces to take Hostomol Airfield. That's just to the northwest of the capital city, Kiev. Uh, on the on day one of this latest phase, um, I mean, you you use airborne forces for a very specific purpose. They are they are light troops. They're basically what they can carry on them and what small number of stores and equipment they can that can come out of the aircraft with them, either either parachuted in or landed by uh, helicopter. So to use airborne forces, their their great strength is their is their speed, aggression, the surprise they can. Um, they can arrive with and and so ca- catch any defending force off guard and quickly take an objective, but as I say, they are light troops. They've not got a lot on them, uh, and they have to be backed up very quickly by by a ground force. If you think back to the Second World War, the um, bridge too far. That's exactly what happened there. The the, the parachute regiment made it to the bridge at Arnhem, but but um, were they're not, uh, they, the ground force weren't able to link up with them. And so if that's if they have used airborne forces in kharkiv it suggests that some larger ground-based push could be in the offing for them to repeat what they did on day one at Hostomel would be absolutely ridiculous so i i can't imagine they'd make the same mistake again but we've yet to see any significant ground move in in that area today
3: just focusing in a bit more on the Russian troops themselves, we had a report yesterday of lots of the troops are in disarray, crying in combat, refusing to obey orders, orders including to shell Ukrainian towns. Others have walked away from the battle. Can you shed any light on what's happening and, and how much should we read into this?
0: Again, you've got to be very cautious about the reports that you, that you get. I mean, we're talking, uh, the US, uh, security, uh, US officials are saying that about 80% of the forces that were arrayed around the border... Um, with Ukraine have been deployed, and they uh, the estimate was up almost to 200,000 prior to the start of this campaign. So they're saying that there are, that, I mean, there's all about 150,000 troops supposedly deployed inside Ukraine. So of course you are going to get stories like this coming out. There will undoubtedly be um, episodes of people who are who are in disarray. Um, depending on what stocks they've taken with them, a week is a long time to exist on on the stores of ammunition, water, fuel, food, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that, um, that you can carry on, on a vehicle or with yourself or in your immediate supply chain. So it's unsurprising that after a week these stories are starting to come out. Um, there's been no large-scale evidence of uh, – or no evidence of a large-scale collapse in the Russian forces – Far from it. I mean, they've 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 seemingly held their ground. What has happened is that the Ukrainians have, have been very smart in the way they've applied their forces. They've not gone. Uh, they've not met the point of strength. They've not gone directly uh, and um, repeatedly against the the tanks and heavy armour. They've uh, they've almost allowed them to the, the tanks to bypass the position so that they can attack the the supply and logistic tail of of those uh, those convoys of those um, thrusts. So Ukrainian forces have been very good at cutting off a lot of the resupply. So it's not surprising that we're getting reports of uh, a certain disarray at the front people abandoning equipment tanks running out of fuel and so on and so forth but um there's been no evidence of large-scale collapse in morale or um destruction of equipment so it doesn't fall into ukrainian hands got to be very cautious about about these claims
3: yeah, absolutely thanks for that um, could we talk quickly about belarus um Alexander Lukashenko appeared yesterday to sort of give away uh, Vladimir Putin's plans for the takeover of Ukraine. What, what happened there? It seemed like a bit of a bizarre episode.
0: Yeah, so th- there was this image of Lukashenko in full sort of headmaster mode with his, uh, with his cane up against a, a map sort of showing um, various possible routes or objectives or what have you. It was very unclear what was what was going on. It's either some uh, grand display of Mazkarovka, this sort of... Um, uh, this idea this, uh, of deception from from Russia um, and Belarus, uh, or or it was a it was a complete PR disaster. No one no one really knows. Um, I mean, Belarusian forces they, they've clearly given support to Russia because a, a number of the the uh, thrusts have come from that area. Um, whether or not Belarusian forces directly have crossed the border and have been and have been engaged, uh, we, we are not sure. Uh, Belarusian the Belarusian army is, is not. Uh, thought to be first rate Um, but uh, as I'm as I'm going to quote in tomorrow's paper uh, a misquote yet again from Stalin uh, quantity has a quality all of its own so if Belarus were to were to come in and directly support Russia that would be um, an additional headache for Ukrainian forces but quite what Lukashenko was up to last night we've we've no idea. And we've heard a
3: lot about uh, war crimes and accusations that Russian forces have committed them. Um, Could you just explain to our listeners what exactly constitutes a war crime and what is the evidence so far that, that, that this has been the case in this conflict?
0: So there are a number of conventions that have come in over the uh, decades, really, to try and bring order to this inherently inhuman situation of people trying to kill each other. So we decided, we, the, the international community, decided there are some things that are just simply abhorrent to humanity and should should not be allowed. And so there should be some form of law, some rules of, of, of warfare. Um, it's very dif- difficult, of course, because there is no... Uh, Global government that can establish these laws. Um, so they brought in in early in the last century the Hague Conventions, and then later on, um, sort of mid-century, the, the Geneva Conventions. And these are all about protecting civilians, um, protecting those who are no longer taking part in combat, i.e., if they if they are troops who are injured or troops who are um, who are surrendering and are clearly showing that they do not intend to uh, play any further part in the war. So there are, there are laws to protect the, these. People, there are um, rules about what uh, uh, um, weapons and tactics you can employ. So you can't use human shields. You can't take people hostage. You can't um, bombard civilian areas. Um, but a lot of these are, are um, there. There are norms rather than laws because, as I say, people haven't signed up to them. It's just how society has tried to evolve. So there's there's um, no ultimate arbiter against. Acting this way, there will be many people who, who bombard a civilian area and say, "Well, I, I, I th- there was a legitimate military target in there," um, and the, the test is: is, is it um, necessary, proportionate, and legitimate to fire into that area? So it, it's very, very a very contested area of international law. You have the International Criminal Court in The Hague that that can uh, hold people to account, um, as we saw um, in in recent months. Actually, people still being prosecuted, commanders of the of the um, a Bosnian Serb army uh, Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic were were taken to the international criminal court in the Hague and held to account for their actions in the Bosnian war of the mid-90s so the message is that there are things that you you, you cannot do that that humanity has decided is just simply not acceptable in warfare and there are repercussions um, but it's all in the grounds of uh, legality and therefore contestable. Francis Dernley, Assistant Comment Editor.
5: It's been very interesting seeing that Boris Johnson saying that all of those involved in the Russian onslaught in in Ukraine should understand that evidence is being gathered for a possible trial at the International Criminal Court. Um, Obviously, stressing this line that this is um, an illegal occupation. And Secretary Blinken yesterday said to the UN Human Rights Council, and I'm quoting here, one can reasonably ask if a UN member state that tries to take over another UN member state while committing horrific human rights abuses and causing massive humanitarian suffering should be allowed to remain on this council. Um, So this is having enormous ramifications for um, Russia's standing in the world and as part of the diplomatic community. Clearly, the West wants to send a signal that this kind of um, invasion or conflict um, is beyond the pale. And that, it, it, in order to um, to do such a thing, um, one is a, a effectively vacating one's seat at all of the most um, important rooms that one wants to be in. Um, and of course, the other thing that this is doing is sending a very, very clear message to Western um, enemies such as, uh, as 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 an emergent China um, uh, that that that, that uh, if you invade Taiwan for instance or if you continue down a path that um, it, it goes against human rights um, then this a similar thing could happen to you so there's a, there's some very very interesting diplomatic manoeuvres taking place at present.
2: Thanks
3: thanks Dom Nichols and Francis Derny for that that was very very interesting. Um, since we're talking about politics now can we move on to so in the British Parliament it was Prime Minister's questions today Um, Tony Diver, you were in Parliament today when the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK, Vadim Pristaiko, received a standing ovation from the entire House of Commons um, just before PMQs. That must have been quite a moment of witness.
1: Yes, it was. And uh, there isn't any clapping in Parliament. That's the rule. Um, You're not allowed to clap people's speeches. Um, But today he was pointed out the Ukrainian ambassador was sat in a gallery sort of above uh, where the Labour MPs were sitting. And immediately MPs stood up began clapping turned to him people other people who were there members of the public members of the press um and sort of other political figures who sit around on the outside um and clapped him there for what I would say probably about a minute um as he stood there I think it was it was a pretty remarkable moment actually in parliament given all of the the rules surrounding what you are and aren't allowed to do the speaker Lindsay Hoyle who's there to enforce those rules said well, ordinarily, we don't allow this sort of thing. But in a, in a time like this, it's important that MPs show their support. Uh, I, yeah, I would say it's a pretty moving moment, actually, quite, quite an atmosphere in parliament today.
3: And what did we learn? do we learn anything more about the British uh, response to the invasion uh, today? Uh, Mutaz and Olivia, do you want to speak to this?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's worth just highlighting what, what Francis was saying there about um, the, the way that the West and Britain is sort of really cracking down now and the the way that boris johnson talked about war crimes in particular is very very interesting because uh as dom explained there are particular categories that that means actions can be can can count as a war crime and to say that this constitutes a war crime obviously it does under the categories that dom laid out um but that's a big step that's a very big step and i think it's just interesting to sort of think imagine three or four weeks ago even uh putin we knew was a a rogue the leader of of a rogue state but there were still you know plenty of reasonable people saying well you know say what you like about Putin but he's he's a I sort of admire his strong leadership etc we've we've got so far beyond that and I just think looking back it's it's sort of important to to just think how quickly this has happened how quickly he's gone from a from a rogue leader uh with with Nefarious designs to being to being someone who's evil, who's been accused of war crimes, and there's no way that Putin's reputation can can be healed now uh, in the West. That era of the West relationship with Russia is and um, with Putin is is over. Um, so yeah, I just think it's worth kind of underlining how big a moment that was uh, to 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 call to accuse Putin of, of war crimes.
3: Mutas uh, Ahmed,
4: yeah, you you've got a House of Commons that's entirely united still on being tough on Russia and on Putin, and the few sort of exceptions uh, you know people are talking about john mcdonald today uh, they look increasingly sort of like outliers and it shows you how se- serious the situation is um, you've got a labour party that's calling for even tougher action than the governing conservative party uh, this con- this 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 country's parliament like much of the west really has has sort of rolled in behind the government which is um you know interesting given the last two years.
3: It's very interesting.
5: Francis Turnley. I, I think it will be um, f- fascinating. We're already seeing during Prime Minister's questions um, MPs pushing for for, for for further sanctions and, and further steps being made. Um, there have been several lawyers, um, British lawyers, that have been named um, in the Commons under parliamentary privilege who are seen as abetting um, oligarchs uh, loyal to Putin, um, and they're calling for 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 them to, to to cease that, or potentially to be forced to cease that. There's often there's obviously also a lot of talk about um, taking further Ukrainian refugees. Britain's already committed to taking two hundred thousand, but um, that that may well be expanded if this uh, um, continues for a, a very long time. Um, there's obviously a conversation to be had about how possibly creating some sort of humanitarian corridor, which is not currently available. Um, and obviously there'll be question marks then about what's what whether the UN would be able to um, protect said corridor or not. And of course, Britain would be at the converse, uh, at the table discussing that. I would suggest that another thing that needs to be very seriously considered by the government is um, the financial support that we are providing for nations like Pakistan. Um, who uh, have announced yesterday that they intended to import two million tons of wheat and natural gas from Russia. A very clear statement from Imran Khan, who was... uh, over in Russia, um, uh, when the conflict began, that he, inter- he is effectively supporting what Putin has done. But Britain sends um, a quarter of a billion pounds in foreign aid to the Pakistani regime, um, and really, um, this does not seem to be the best use of said funds. Um, and likewise, of course, is um, it's been as I was saying earlier, it's, been, it's going to be absolutely crucial how we handle. Um, China, we cannot afford to have China propping up Putin long term. Um, and so all of our diplomatic efforts um, will need to be steering towards making sure that um, the, 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 the China remains um, at the very least um, detached from what is currently taking place. And all of this needs to occur, of course, without risks of, of very, very serious escalation. We were speaking yesterday about that. And um, it is very, very serious that um, when when whenever Leaders and governments are threatening nu- um, the use of nuclear weapons. Um, people can interpret that in different ways on the ground, and before you know it, something goes horribly wrong. So, a lot of things um, uh, currently in play um, from the British perspective.
3: Dom Nichols, can I bring you in here? Um, having listened to all that, what are your thoughts on the current British response and 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 uh, our relationship with 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 countries like Pakistan and China, and how that plays into this?
0: Well, I think it's really interesting. I think the um, the business with China is is particularly one one to watch. It's notable how they've slightly shifted their position over the last week, uh, because of course th- they will be watching this very very closely. As, as we've already mentioned, their relationship with Taiwan is very. Um, the, the many lessons from this will be will be read across to that. Uh, particularly how the international community swiftly and comprehensively stands up against this kind of aggression, um, and so China will be taking a lot of very. Uh, very good lessons from this hopefully. I mean there has been some chat recently from um, from parliamentarians and elsewhere that we need to start thinking about um, our relationship with Russia post-Putin. Now that might be short term hopefully or a bit longer term because we do need to reach out to Russia. We have no quarrel with the Russian people. It's the, the current Russian leadership that uh, that we have difficulties with. But we need to be able to get past this and, and reintegrate Russia into the European security architecture so that when this confrontation um, with China happens in the future, whenever that may be, and it's looking sooner rather than later, that um, the, the, the Russia is included in that. So I think there are a lot of moves here that are v- very interesting and laying the groundwork for future diplomatic efforts to have a global a global response. The only other point I'd make is the, the stuff in the UN about whether or not Russia should be ejected from the Security Council and uh, and what, what steps need to be taken there. For many years there's been, there's been talk that the United Nations needs reform. The UN was set up after the Second World War with one aim and one aim only and that was to make sure there was not a Third World War. It did that job brilliantly. It's done that job brilliantly for nearly 80 years. But the compromise, having, a, having a, um, a, a permanent membership of the Security Council with the power of veto, the compromise is that you're going to get the occasional Rwanda and the occasional Bosnia and the occasional Syria and all these other horrific acts that the world doesn't seem to be able to stop. And that's because of the construct. Uh, as I said at the very beginning, there is no global government. Um, there is nobody who can actually say definitively what can and can't happen on this planet right now. The best we've got is the UN, and the UN has been shown to be flawed in many, many ways over the years. And I just wonder if this latest episode with a with a, a P5 member, a Security Council member, attacking another member of the United Nations so blatantly, whether or not this is finally going to bring people to... Uh, to the table to think, right, we need a new security architecture for the world, because what we've got at the moment just isn't working. The UN is, is past its sell-by date. It does a lot of good work on many, many different areas, but we need a new overarching security architecture. And I think those two ideas, the future for the UN and the future relationship with China, are, are all starting to, the ideas are all starting to fizz out of this current uh, conflagration in Ukraine. Thanks for that, Dom Nichols. Talking about diplomacy, um, can we talk a
3: little bit about Volodymyr Zelensky and, and, and how he's been using things like social media, how he's been uh, interacting with world leaders and, and, and the impact that's had on the crisis? I, I don't know if uh, Olivia or, or Mutaz or Tony want to talk to this.
4: Yeah, just um, yeah. very quickly, On, on it, it's worth noting these uh, institutions, NATO, the UN, are still, up to now at least, preventing World War III. Um, NATO is, is, for now, preventing Russia... From uh, you know uh, going into countries like uh, Estonia, um, and the United Nations is for now keeping the world's nuclear powers around the same table. And once you reject a nuclear power from the Security Council, then then what is the point of having uh, a global instit- institution that that gets nuclear powers around the table? Any any replacement institution would we, we still have to do the same task of getting Russia and China and and Britain and France uh, uh, all these big. Nuclear powers uh, to talk to each other, so that that's that's um, it, it. Highlights a point that w- we are still a bit helpless, and really, there's no there, there are no answers um, um, on Zelensky. He's fascinating. This this former comedian actor. Um, I saw a clip of him um, a, uh, a few hours ago on on Twitter uh, in, in one of his movies, pretending to pick up uh, or acting, you know, a phone call with An- Angela Merkel. Um, and and here we are five years after that movie was released, and and it's a much darker darker time, and 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 Ukraine is is actually asking for immediate accession into the EU. He what he's done very well is he's anticipated the Russian disinformation machine, and he's played their game better than them. Right, so a, a, some of what we're seeing from Ukrainian sources is factually questionable but it's it's very good it's a very good information online propaganda campaign uh it's working very well uh on different days he appeals to different groups today he's appealed to the world's jews um, to look at what's happening to many jews in ukraine there's there's a large jewish population he himself coming from a jewish background uh using you know social media to record sort of selfie videos with his, I was having this discussion with someone the other day. What what's so what's so attractive about Zelensky? Uh, uh, it's probably his sort of soft voice and the fact that he's he's a little bit short and 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 normal and he hasn't shaved and he's he's exhausted. And you're watching this man go through sort of this embodying what Ukraine is going through and and being very humble and compare what the images he's putting out of himself with the images we see of Putin. Um, uh, a, a man surrounded by his team, exhausted, fighting for his country, and another man isolated, sitting uh, uh, alone at the end of a long table, and it, it tells you the story of this conflict, doesn't it?
5: I, I just want to echo that and, and 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 say that I think Putin would have completely miscalculated um, Zelensky. I, I think many of us felt that perhaps he was slightly out of his depth in the in the early stages of the conflict prior to the invasion um, on the diplomatic circuit. Um, but the way in which Putin has miscalculated him is that clearly, um, an actor, a trained actor, is going to be very, very charismatic um, in when giving speeches to rally people, and that's and and, and so it has proved in in his case, um, not just to his own people um, and the wider world, but also to of course the, the the world leaders that he's dealing with on a daily basis. Apparently, it was his speech um, uh, to the EU. Um, that actually jolted Olaf Scholz to trigger the complete U-turn in German foreign policy, which will now see 100 billion spend on their armed forces, 2% of their GDP. Um, Basically, because Zarensky said that this may be the last time you see me alive. Um, and, and so, uh, it, he has proven himself a remarkable leader, um, against all of the odds. And I think many, many people around the world are just in awe of what he has able, been able to achieve. He gave a speech today where he spoke about, um, Ukraine being united for, for the first time in many decades. And I think he is largely responsible for that.
3: Uh, Tony Dover and Olivia Utley, you, you, you both watch British politics day in and day out. Um, it must be quite something to to, to see uh, to see a figure like Zelensky um, doing what he's doing. What are your thoughts on on his diplomacy and, and his politics?
1: Well, I think one of the things we've got to remember here is the huge amount of pressure that Zelensky is personally under. We know that overnight there was another attempt to assassinate him. Um, it's been reported that Putin has specifically ordered gangs of armed mercenaries on the ground in Ukraine to try and assassinate Zelensky. It's said that trying to kill him is one of the main objectives at the moment of, of russian forces so for him to be doing tv interviews and holding calls with world leaders and and being out on the it seems that he's out on the streets and sometimes on the front line at the moment I, it's worth pointing out the extraordinary courage that it takes for someone to do that when you know that there are literally gangs of highly trained uh soldiers out there specifically to to try and kill you i mean it Inevitably, we look at our own leaders and try and imagine how they would survive in in similar circumstances. But um, yeah, I mean, as Francis said, you know, you've got a man here who who is essentially a celebrity politician turned serious politician turned into military leader. That's that's quite a transition. Dom,
3: Dom Nichols, as defence editor, I mean, what's your take on Zelensky? I don't think we've heard from you yet.
0: No, I think he, as as, um, as Tony's just been saying, his transition uh, to a wartime leader has been has been remarkable and it takes a, a, a huge number of skills that are not always on ev- in evidence to to be a, a wartime leader i mean you look at churchill before before the second world war um the, the how he was viewed um and his his sort of checkered political career but you know what war demands different things of of people and uh, yeah zelensky's uh, is seems to be the right guy for the, for the moment i mean the the business when when the us supposedly offered him a a lift out for his own uh, safety albeit to run a government in exile, if he if he so wish, but to to get him out um, f- to, for his his safety, I mean that reply. Uh, and I don't think we've ever had a, an exact form of words, but essentially it came down to I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. I mean, come on, that that's, you that's sort of movie 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 language. As you say, this guy's an actor, so he knows what he's doing. That he may well have rehearsed that. I don't know, but yeah, that plays brilliantly well. And people who are. Uh, in desperate measures, uh, civilians and military who are uh, fighting insurmountable, potentially insurmountable odds, or up against up against the fight of their lives, they need this kind of language. I mean, it might seem a little bit glib sitting here. I don't think it does personally, but some people might think think it is. Um, but to hear that when the chips are down and when you need leadership, this this is the kind of stuff you need. So, yeah, I mean, it cometh the yeah, cometh the man. Zelensky is is the wartime leader that Ukraine needs right now. Olivia Utley, assistant editor.
2: Yeah, someone was saying on Twitter, and I thought it was a very good point, that it would be as if Hugh Grant, who played the prime minister in Love Actually, actually got elected as prime minister and then turned out to be Churchill. Um, the Zelensky's story is just absolutely insane. And when you read his whole life story, it just... It just doesn't ring true at all. But 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 I totally agree with Dom that that is exactly the sort of leadership that the people of Ukraine need right now. And to have an act there, someone who's so charismatic and who does who, who's who can pull off saying lines like that. I mean, I don't think there are that many world leaders who could pull off a line like that. But he can, and uh, that that's definitely helping to keep morale up in Ukraine at the moment. Which is obviously about the most.
4: Important. And 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 Zelensky isn't alone, right? His his foreign minister is very impressive. The, the, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN in his speech, reaching, read, reading out that text from a, a Russian soldier to his mother saying he didn't even know he was going to war, was very impressive. Uh, you've got Viktor Poroshenko, the former president, a billionaire standing in the streets, you know, with his Kalashnikov talking to CNN cameras and Sky News cameras. It's very smart. It's very impressive. And you get the sense that the last eight years, the fact that Russia first invaded Uh, A part of Ukraine eight years ago has given the country a a chance to forge, not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, a stronger military and to prepare for what's happening now, but to forge a a sort of generation of of very strong, very smart, modern leaders. Um, And that's something that Chechnya, I'm afraid, didn't have. It's something that Libya didn't have. It's something that the Syrian rebel forces didn't have. And that's what's making Ukraine very, very different, apart from the fact that it's also in, in Europe.
5: Um, and one could I, He's formed a national national identity as well, um, I, which is, as I say, in this speech that he gave today, he was talking about that that he the country is sort of unified for the first time, um, and it's it's just a remarkable achievement. And I would just ask listeners: Can you imagine Putin doing this? I don't think there's any chance if Putin were uh, surrounded that he wouldn't have got the first helicopter out of there. Um, so it is a a, a, a truly r- remarkable um, leadership quality that Zelensky has. Been. Which, um, has 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 done these last few days.
3: Well, let's let's come on to Vladimir Putin, uh, the Russian president. Um, we haven't seen him too often in the last few days. Uh, what do we make of 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 his of of how he's appeared when he when he has appeared? His relationships with his oligarchs and everybody else in the government. Um, what, is there much we can say for certain about the state of Russian government at the moment?
5: Well, I mean, I think that uh, it's to any to any observers who've watched Putin. Um, for many decades, he always seems very measured and calculated. But in his most recent speeches, they, they're more described really as outbursts I mean, calling um, the, the, the leaders of Ukraine uh, sort of drug-addled Nazis. I mean, this is not the kind of rhetoric one would normally expect from from Putin. So it does seem that he is um, very much um, rumbled by what is going on. And can you blame him? It seems that almost all of his intelligence was wrong. And I, I hate to keep reiterating this point, but for me, one of the most revealing and, and, and important moments of this whole crisis was that Security Council meeting um, that he gave only a matter of days before um, uh, before the invasion that was sort of publicly um, shown to, to the world as, I think, an attempt to show uh, Russian unity behind Putin and for him to stamp his authority on his underlings. But what you could see there was just the sense of a, of a leader who was detached um, um, from those who were under him, keeping a, a very far away distance um, due to COVID fears, and who was not allowing any dissent from them at all. And they clearly um, included, uh, particularly his intelligence chief did not agree with Putin's stance and I think that the West watched that um, and to Dom's point earlier on the West watched that and thinks that there is an opportunity here for the West to appeal directly to these people who have been sidelined by Putin um, as well as the Russian people themselves because clearly uh, Russia is not unified behind um, behind these actions of Putin that doesn't say they won't fight. But they are not unified. And um, there is perhaps an opportunity to for a de-escalation um, on those grounds. But it's possibly too early to say.
2: I do completely agree with France's assessment there that there are plenty of uh, men in, in Putin's Security Council who aren't standing behind him. And it does seem from an outsider's perspective, at least as, th- as though Putin has lost his mind in some way. And I'm sure there are a lot of uh, people who who just don't agree with what he's doing. That said, um, there's a very interesting article today uh, in The Telegraph by Philip Johnston, who is say, making the point that we shouldn't overstate that, we shouldn't keep on saying that, that the Russian people don't stand behind Putin um, as long as we can just... Make, make it clear to them that that our fight with, is with Putin and not with them, then all will be fine, because that's not necessarily true. And there is a Russian distrust of the West, uh, a feeling that the West has mistreated Russia over the decades, which long predates Putin. And it is worth remembering that as well as the Russians who hate the look of what's going on at the moment, there will be plenty of Russians probably older Russians who remember the Soviet Empire, who, who, who have sympathy with Putin and are pleased that he's doing this and, and aren't looking at the pictures of Ukraine with horror. So, so I just think we should we should be careful not to overplay the Russians aren't are different from Putin uh, line too much.
5: Yeah, I mean, a, a linchpin of the Russian identity is, is is this sort of fear of the West and fear of invasion of the West. Um, and um, obviously, if one looks at Russian history from Napoleon to, to Hitler, they have good reason for that, because when there have been invasions in the past, they have been absolutely devastating for the Russian people. Um 27 million lives lost in, uh, in due to the Nazi invasion, the Soviet Union Operation Barbarossa in 1941. So um, it, it has a very long history and and to some extent with some justification, albeit one that is clearly stoked by um, by the dictators who have governed, governed Russia for so much of its history.
3: I don't know, Dom Nichols, if you want to come in on any of that on, on Putin and, and the Russian state.
0: Well, the only thing I'd add is is that it's worth thinking about how he's in power. I mean, he is, he is an autocrat. He has shaped the state um in his own guise his own mould but but he is not invulnerable and there's a there's a coterie of people around him who are beholden to him but also um who have power over him so that the inner circle of oligarchs and and power men who and i think they all are men uh who have made uh, made huge fortunes out of his rule and going along with this uh, with his uh his way his, his brand of leadership um I mean, they're kind of tied to him, but at the, same, at the same time, they are very much more international than perhaps he is. They, you know, a lot of business interests overseas, which is why a lot of the sanctions have, have really uh, had an effect. So these guys, uh, there's only going to be so much that they can take. And I, you know, it might be wishful thinking. I said yesterday I'm an, I'm an optimist. But um, only so much of these guys will take before they start to say, are we better off with a different Leader in in some guise. Is it time for someone else? How do we do this? And they and they do have the power to be able to do that. Um, I, I can't see it happening. There's no science just yet, but uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount it. I don't think um, we should see Putin as utterly invulnerable. Um, and I'm loving I'm loving the memes. The the uh, as you say, how how Zelensky is is running um, the social social media image. And um, and then you look at look at Putin on these these long tables and you get all the memes about you know the uh, the Putin IKEA table It's sort of twenty seven feet long and six hundred quid or something, and um, yeah I mean it's it's ridiculous it's literally ridiculous it's worthy of ridicule and I'm glad to see that that he is being ridiculed this this long table with memes of yo sushi going up and down between him and Lavrov, I, I you know I c- I can consume that stuff all day and I don't mean the sushi. Thank you, Dom. <laughs> I, I think- <laughs>
3: I think, I think I th- oh, sorry 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 Muteses please.
4: I think he's been struck by Gaddafi syndrome, which is you know as an autocrat you stay in power, uh, you get to a point where you've been in power for so long that you forget yourself and 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 the power drives you a bit mad. We know we definitely know he's changed. The the assessments we we made about Putin in the in the past we cannot make today. Just look at what Macron has said. Macron met him a few years ago met him again very recently uh, in the Kremlin to prevent this war and he told uh, his advisors that Putin was a different man he was much tougher uh, more strong headed less sort of open to dialogue look at what Marco Rubio the US Senator uh, for Florida has has, has tweeted Uh, he's a member of the US uh, Senate Intelligence Committee which gets a lot of uh, America's intelligence um, information and he said that while he can't of course, reveal everything. He has said that that Putin is off. Putin is off. So something's changed. Um, And and if that's uh, the American intelligence um, speaking, then it's it's very, very worrying. Uh, Another man I've I've been speaking to and who wrote for today's paper is Tony Brenton, who is the former British ambassador to Russia. And he's written a piece today saying that he got Putin completely wrong. Um, He knew Putin. Um, uh, and, and I was struck talking to Tony before the invasion happened. He was adamant that there would be no full invasion of Ukraine. He was absolutely ad- adamant and he was absolutely shocked that it actually happened because his assessment of Putin was based on what he saw, which was a, a very a very rational, calculated man. Not a good man, no, but calculated and rational. He read his briefs. He was on top of everything. He was very smart witty. Uh, uh, he, he approached meetings with an open mind, um, uh, and, and he was open to dialogue. Um, and all these people who have met the man are saying something's wrong. Uh, we, should, we should probably listen to them.
3: We've talked a lot about the sort of high diplomacy. Um, we've talked about Zelensky. I think, I think we do need to talk a bit about the actions of the Ukrainian people. I, I sort of have uh, let's discuss that a little bit. What, what have they been doing? And also I'm interested to hear from Dom, is this something that, you know, what what is the tactical and the strategic uh, uh, um, impact of the acts of heroism we've been seeing and uh, incredible bravery, things like standing in front of tanks, um, trying to prevent Russian soldiers from, from moving through towns in their jeeps and buggies and that, that sort of thing. What, 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 what Can we talk a little bit to that and also think about the military implications of that on, on the conflict?
0: It goes without saying that the civilian population have been incredibly brave and stoic. It's just amazing and humbling to see. Um, The thing about war is it ultimately comes down to one human saying to another human, if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to kill you. Um, Now, that's often that, that conversation very rarely takes place because it's done through missiles and standoff and and all the rest of it but what you're seeing in ukraine is people coming out of their homes and just standing in front of tanks and armored vehicles and trucks and these convoys going through their villages and and just and just speaking in the same language the same russian language as the people in the trucks and saying what are you doing? We, we don't want you here. Go home. Did you see the chanting yesterday? Go home. Go home. Go home. This is not what the Russians were expecting. It's very calm. It's very ordered. It's very, very, very peaceful in many ways. There's a, a great piece on the front page of the Daily Telegraph from, from Colin Freeman, uh, our chap in, in Kiev, who, who was who was stood there reporting and sort of taking taking the atmosphere. And this 80-year-old woman came up to him. Uh, with a mobile phone in one hand and a police truncheon in the other, and demanded to to him to explain who he was and what he was doing there, um, as if he, yeah, to make sure he wasn't a uh, wasn't a spy. I mean, there's incredible resolve being shown. Um, I, I hope, I really hope that that the, the, the Russians, who so far have shown a, a measure of restraint in those situations, do not decide, no, we, we've we've got to continue driving or shooting or, or what have you. I think it's very interesting to see that in some areas of uh, Ukraine, the civilian population is starting to to do... The very, the very uh, sort of low-level tactics, but eminently doable, eminently, eminently achievable by by civilians to stop armored convoys. Welding metal bars together to form the uh, sort of the, the, these kind of pyramid structures that will stop a tank. will, will, will stop, um, will stop armored vehicles. Um, laying three wires, three three sec- lines of concertina wire across a, across the street that will stop a tank. That goes wrapped right around the back axle. It's going to stop a tank. Stop my tank on Salisbury playing twenty years ago, but that's another that's another matter. Um, so you know. There are things that can happen and, and are being done, and the resolve and determination of the civilian population is is staggering to see. And, and we should we should always hold that. There should always be stories of that um, uh, being held up as, as examples of, of how to resist. I don't know who wants to come in on that, Musa. I know you have some some thoughts on this.
4: It, it's very admirable. It's, it's interesting. Uh, this is the one thing that we uh, Britain and America have been wrong on. I think the, the British and American governments have consistently underestimated just how strong um, the Ukrainian resistance would be. So our intelligence was spot on about Russia invading. It it seems to have been wrong about um, uh, the Ukrainian resistance. Uh, It's been astonishing. Um, But but I'm afraid to say that it it means things are going to get much uglier. If one side has a strategy of basically surrounding cities and besieging them, and the other side has a strategy of urban warfare and making these cities as impenetrable as possible uh, th- th- those battles are going to get much much uglier uh and the russian military doctrine is to get tougher when you face adversity so um you're you're hearing people now talk about um, humanitarian uh, uh roads and and humanitarian routes out of these cities th- those comments in themselves are very ominous um so yeah uh, the, the ukrainian people have been admirable but it's it, it's it's um i i'm not too hopeful well,
5: uh, I, think I was uh, oh sorry francis i was just going to say i was very struck by um a ukrainian regional chief who said that his city will become the new stalingrad you know defiantly saying that and um it's a fascinating battle to choose um don was mentioning earlier on um arnhem which obviously has a place in our um, national story in our view of the of the war but it pales in comparison to the significance of Stalingrad which was the bloodiest battle of the war and um, some two million casualties and um, on, fought on the eastern front I mean if any battle speaks to the abject brutality of war on the eastern front it's Stalingrad um, and uh, the reason I think that 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 um, this Ukrainian regional chief referenced it is because, well, I think there's several reasons. The first is the visual. Stalingrad was a city that was raised to the ground by um, German shelling and uh, bombing from the Luftwaffe. Um, and yet the Soviets resisted um, and eventually turned the tide and won the battle. So clearly lots of illusions there. It was also supported um, um, in that by sort uh, numerous um, airdrops and things like that by the Soviets to keep their people um, uh, going. So one wonders whether that's sort of an appeal to that as well, um, but more significant than that, this of course was a Russian victory. So by saying that he is underlining the, uh, the fact that this is uh, sort of playing Russian history against them. And we've spoken before about the way in which the great patriotic war as the second world war is known in Russia. Um, is still a huge foundational part of uh, of the national identity. I mean, you, you go to Russia um, and and speak to people, and it's they talk about it as if it was fought yesterday. So to reference Stalingrad in this way that essentially portrays the Soviets as the Nazis is is, is hugely um, um, symbolic of, of the atrocities they are committing. And I suppose the the other sort of significance of it is that it, Stalingrad was considered and is considered by many historians as the turning point of the war. Um, von Manstein, who was one of the German commanders on the Eastern Front, himself said that um, in total raw psychological in, you know things are, are due to play a d- decisive role and stalingrad was the turning point in that sense so clearly all of these things are trying to build up the fact that that if it comes down to these cities being raised the ground that the ukrainians will continue to fight to the bitter end and um, let's hope it doesn't happen but it's a very very clear statement of 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 intent um and one that we should all be very concerned about because as i say stalingrad was it was a five month battle with 2 million casualties
3: Dominic Nichols, any final thoughts? Uh,
0: my final thought is, I would watch the South. That that seems to be the area where Russia has had um, some success, or the most success. Um, I think they will will seek to reinforce that success, and that ties in with um, what was assessed as one of their earlier. Or the objectives all along which was gaining that land corridor from the donbass down to crimea so um yes we'll of course keep an eye on on kiev the capital city and kharkiv and the other cities that are under bombardment but have a look at what Russia's doing down to the south to uh to reinforce that success and consolidate those gains thanks very much guys thanks tom olivia tony mutas what do you think
1: yeah i think my final thought from a sort of british political perspective would be don't underestimate what the british government is still willing to do we heard of quite triumphalist Boris Johnson today, who was feeling quite pleased with himself with what the British government has already done. Um, He's very pleased that the the Russian stock market has not been able to open for three days, but they're going to keep turning the thumbscrews. I think actually we could see this get a lot more ugly back in Russia. Uh, And and I I think the Brits are willing to lead the way on that. So I think for for the Brits in the audience and for the British political watchers among us, uh, that will remain the most interesting story, I think, in the coming days.
2: I think we should be watching out for what morale is like among Russian soldiers, in particular. Um, it's not quite clear. We're hearing conflicting reports. Um, that there's we hear we hear often that the Russian army actually isn't really up to much. Uh, it's been all over the place. So I think in the coming days it'll become clearer whether these are soldiers who don't really want to be there or whether they believe in the mission that they're fighting for, and that will have a huge impact on what comes to pass.
4: Um, I. I think Kiev will come to define the war. Um, the, the battle for Kiev will be, I, I think it will shock us all. Um, it will be something we really haven't seen in, in Europe in a very long time. And so be prepared for that. And we have a lot to do to support Ukrainians um, uh, because, you know, if, if they can keep this spirit of defiance alive, whatever horrors will come in the next few months, you know, th- their nation will survive uh, and it, and it will rise again at some point um but no i think it i think've got a, we've got some dark months ahead very dark months ahead
3: if you'd like to read more of our ukraine coverage and you're not a telegraph subscriber go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio where you can get your first month completely free if you found this podcast helpful follow ukraine the latest on your podcast app And do leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That way, we know that we're making an audio that you'd like listening to. You can listen to this podcast live on Twitter Spaces every day at 1pm. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to keep on top of what we're doing there. Finally, you can email me at podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Perhaps there's a topic or a question you'd like us to dig into on a future episode. Do let me know, and thank you for listening.